This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Talk Tuners. This is co-host Stephanie Myers. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of losing the legendary Meatloaf on January 20th, 2022. This re-release Encore episode was originally released January 25th of last year, and features my personal meat stories and memories as a big, big fan spanning back over the years. And the second half of this episode features an interview I did with the man himself in 2010. So you'll be able to hear him today. I hope you enjoy. Please connect with us and let us know about your meatloaf memories. We'd love to hear them. Thanks, Talk Tuners. We appreciate you. And as Meat would say, never stop rocking. We have quite the episode for you today, Talk Tuners. We are going to be talking about meatloaf memories, and then we're also going to be sharing previously unreleased audio of an interview that I was fortunate enough to do with Meat in 2010 for the now defunct Dunce Cat Quarterly publication. So a lot to unpack here, but I am happy to share that. I was initially kind of bummed that the text version of that interview doesn't exist anywhere anymore online, and then I realized I have something better. Actually, I have the audio of that interview. I'll be sharing that with you today. So that'll be the other half of the episode. And I'll talk more about that later. But as folks probably know, I'm a little bit of a super fan. So Stephanie, really appreciative to you for letting me talk about meatloaf during this episode that I know will be cathartic for me. Yeah, absolutely, Stephanie. You definitely need to talk about meatloaf. It's one of the things that I love about you, uh, that you are a super fan. As one of your closest friends, I absolutely get it. Um, and I'm excited to hear um, your memories. And I'll probably learn something today myself, even though I know a lot, um, but I'm excited. So let's go. Yeah. For those new to the show, and I imagine we have a few today, we talk about the stories and the memories that we connect with the music that's impacted our lives. So having said that, there'll be a lot of podcast episodes probably that came out recently out there that'll give you the full history of Milov, his career, the way he got his name, what he won't do for love. All that's pretty easily Googleable, low-hanging fruit. We're not going to do that today, Talk Tuners. Um, this isn't the podcast that just reads you Wikipedia. This is where we talk about the memories we associate with the music. So you have heard me mention Meatloaf a few times in passing on this show. And what most of you who know me in person will know is that, yeah, I'm a Meatloaf super fan. So what does that mean, Stephanie? What capacity? Uh, I'll say Spotify Wrapped comes up and tells me every year you're in the top point. 0.3% of Meatloaf listeners globally. That was interesting. 
true. Uh, my fandom led me to see him perform 13 times over the years. I had the good fortune of meeting him in person, which I'll talk about. And of course, also got the chance to interview him as a music journalist. Um, so this is going to be a cathartic episode for me and probably an emotional one. Yeah, absolutely. I totally get that, Stephanie. Now, I'm curious to know about this uh, statistic that you get from Spotify. So since you are part of this elite meatloaf uh, listening fan base, how many times on average do you listen to meatloaf on a week? I don't know. It feels like a lot. Sometimes I will uh, start the day with espresso and some meatloaf mm-hmm. to really kick things off. And it's really sometimes a morning ritual, but don't ever realize until I get my Spotify wrapped. I think they came up and gave me the screenshot of Meatloaf is your artist of the decade, which I don't know if everyone got that, but I'll share it because I screenshotted it. That's awesome. Yeah. Funny. I get the rap as well. And I, I always am the, I'm on the high end of Slipknot. It's I love me some Slipknot, but I am not at this 0.03%. So that is awesome. Hell yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. But Stephanie, just first off, I think about our kind of funny exchange when we both lived in New York. And I was about to take a friend um, to go see Meatloaf play. They hadn't seen him before. I'd seen him many times previously at that point. And I'd said something offhand to you before I went, like, uh, some people like don't understand my Meatloaf fandom. I have to explain I'm not attracted to Meatloaf. Nothing to be ashamed of if I was. Uh, instead, he's my hero. And without batting an eyelash or missing a beat or being like, Myers, what the fuck are you talking about? He's your hero. Like, what? What? You were just like, yeah, I feel the same way about Samuel L. Jackson. (laughs) So I appreciate our friendship and how we're on the same wavelength and understand each other when it comes to these things. Yes, absolutely. And I totally get that. I understand fandom and folks... We talk a lot about fandom um, in previous episodes, so please check them out because it's a real thing and it's something that I totally understand. And yes, so Samuel Jackson is my hero. He's one of the best actors out of there. I absolutely love him. You know, he's straight up. He don't give a fuck. And I love his story of how he come in, came in later in life to be a star. That is, it's so, so encouraging. Love, love, love and respect Samuel Jackson. But um, one thing as far as Meatloaf goes, and I'm going to be completely honest, guys, Meatloaf isn't my cup. I totally get it. Completely understand. I think he's phenomenal artist, deserves all the super fandoms just like Myers is. I get it. But I really appreciate Meatloaf as an actor. So um, I really loved his energy. And, you know, I was first introduced Meatloaf um, in Rocky Horror. So, yeah, that, that, that alone. I mean, I don't even have to go into that. So I'm sure it was like, yeah. But something that I absolutely loved was uh, The Pick of Destiny. Uh, <laughs> which was a Jack Black's movie. There's a scene in that movie, y'all, where he calls Meatloaf (laughs) and asks him to be his dad. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Cool is that? And so, yeah, I definitely checked that out. But one of the, other than Rocky Horror, one of the movies that I saw with him that he really played a prominent role was Fight Club. So in Fight Club, he paid uh, the the character of Robert Paulson. And so I'm not going to go all into that, but he was hilarious. It was an off-ball character. It was one of, it was, it made, it was one of the movie, one of the parts of the movie that just really stuck out. And if you were to Google Fight Club and just on YouTube, you're always going to find the Robert Paulson scene because he was that good. So enjoyed him so much, so much. 
Oh, too funny. Too funny. Another thing that I really love about Meatloaf is um, his family. So his family's very musically inclined as well. And as the resident metalhead between me and Stephanie, I really, really, really thought it was super cool when I learned that his daughter, Pearl, is married to Scott Ian, like ultimate power rock couple because Pearl is a musician herself. Scott Ian, for folks that do not know, he is a legendary lead guitarist of a small band called Anthrax. <laughs> Holy shit. I was like, wow, that's super cool. So yeah, I totally understand why Jack Black called Meatloaf and said, I want you to be my dad. Yeah, of course. So for sure, who would it? And you know, Stephanie, as you know, as you started introducing me more to, to Meatloaf's career, um, and we talk about this a lot, um, is our love for karaoke. And I have very, very fond memories of you just belting Paradise by the Dashboard Light with our friend Aaron. Um, really great, great <laughs> memories. I, I say, yeah. Steph, you, you talk about having your list of karaoke songs, and I, I think that should be on the list. Yeah. Like, your yeah. go-to, for sure. That's on there. That's on there. I always okay. tell people... <laughs> well, I always tell people, um, Meatloaf at karaoke, that's like a, like a vampire. Somebody else has to invite that in, because if I invite that in, we're going to be here all day. And it's just going to be 15 minute meatloaf song. So that's actually my rule. Somebody else invented it in. Yes. I'm yeah, absolutely. Because they are long, they're epic, but I absolutely love it. So um, I, I definitely will always cherish those memories. So yeah, meatloaf is the man. Yeah. Thinking about how theatrical that is, he poured every inch of his energy into his live shows that were very theatrical and we're sitting here talking about his acting roles it's because he fittingly considered himself an actor who can sing. He'd said that a number of times over the years and I think would be really comfortable with that being a huge part of his legacy. Um, he did Shakespeare in the Park. That's a very esteemed New York City tradition in Central Park. He did Hair. He did National Lampoon Tour. did other musicals. Early musical collaborations with, of course, Jim Steinman. His first album, as an aside, was not actually Bad Out of Hell. It was Stony and Meatloaf, released in Motown's Rare Earth imprint. So he actually had that connection um, to Motown, but uh, it's always been very theatrical. He's been in over 100 movies. Rhodey was one that he starred in in 1980. Debbie Harry and others are in it. We'll leave it there if you want to see Rhodey. Okay, I do. I've never heard of this. This is new for me. Oh. So what's Rhodey about? So Rhodey centers around a young woman who wants to get with Alice Cooper. And, How come I've never seen yeah. this? Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe I'll leave the plot point there. Okay. But All right. Yeah. You can, uh, you can watch <laughs> that. You can see Meatloaf. He is the star of the movie. Okay. It's cool. uh He's he's a very funny character in it. <laughs> yeah, you guys can just check that out. All right, we're just gonna leave that there. All right, continue, dear. Oh, I'm I got something to watch yeah. after this podcast. But stars, yeah. Um, and then Rocky Horror, of course, is his debut. No, he's so beloved as we've talked about in his Fight Club role. I will say, like personally, Leap of Faith is my favorite role of his. If folks are going to go check that out, he's kind of in an ensemble cast, but it's a really funny part. And then if folks are just looking to learn more about his film roles, actually check out Stage Fright from a few years back. It's a horror musical where he sings and he has these really good numbers. Um, so that one's pretty good. I'd say to get a real sense of who he was as a performer, 
Uh, check out the documentary In Search of Paradise, where you see the links he'd go to for his live shows and what a self-flagellating performer he was. He gave every bit of himself on stage, and these were famously Broadway-like shows. Paradise by the Dashboard Light, as we talked about, was always very staged as a sketch when you go see him in these shows. And I'd really recommend the documentary if you want to get a sense of his stage shows, what he was striving for in that shows. Um, you'll hear me talk and ask him about the documentary in the interview here later in the episode, too. So that's what we're talking about in Search of Paradise. So just wanted to change gears and talk about my discovery of Meatloaf initially and my ultra fandom, give people context. So I first discovered Meat when I was 12. Bad Out of Hell 2 came out, of course, with Anything for Love, Rock and Roll Dreams come through. Discovered Bat 2 kind of at the same time as I discovered the original Bad Out of Hell and got into both of those albums. Really, the music at that point, it just connected with me in a way that I hadn't even connected with music prior to that time. Been into music, but gave me a visceral feeling. I had just never felt, really, he became part of my quote-unquote musical identity. And I think music itself opened up to me in a way it hadn't previously after I got into those albums. So I'd followed his music fastidiously over the years. I always got his albums the day they came out, sometimes before they came out. Um, in one case, I got his album, Hell in a Handbasket, before it was released in the U.S. I got the Australian release. And I wrote about it for the Australian music site, Music Feeds. And Meatloaf actually retweeted it, and it got um, really good traffic. And then Music Feeds came and told me, yeah, write for us anytime. We have this. We have this amazing traffic. So that was that was kind of cool. Oh my gosh, Stephanie, that's fucking amazing. Um, and that's something I've learned today here. It just goes you're so <laughs> humble. Holy shit. Oh my God. Oh, I just wow. I forgot. Wow. All right. So, sorry, I just needed to say my wows because that's super impressive, girl. I'd forgotten about it and all these kind of memories did come back to me um over the past couple of days after his passing, but yeah, like so ingrained in these different parts of parts of my life. Uh, saw him, as I talked about, play in concert 13 times total, including for the first time when I was 13. And I had begged my dad to take me to his show in Houston, Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion, still one of my favorite venues. It was a great show. Another memorable show included a trip flying from New York to Vegas to see him at uh, Hard Rock Casino's Rock Tales and Cocktails show. I uh, went on a special trip with my mom. She got to see her for the first time. And that was a show that included fire eaters <laughs> and acrobats and then a levitating bed like the Anything for Love video. It was all very on brand. Of course. <laughs> of course. That's so cool. That's cool. It was very on brand for me, that show. And I... Had the good fortune of seeing him many times over the years. And the final time I saw him play was in New Jersey in 2016 with our friend Gina, who passed five years ago this summer from cancer. As an aside, we talked about Gina in a number of past episodes. You can check out our Chris Cornell episode if you want to hear just more of our funny stories related to that. I remember I when you went to that show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I remember because I was actually living with Gina at the time and she was super stoked about it. And she's like, yes, Stephanie and I are going to go see Meatloaf. And I'm like, that is the obsession. I totally get, but I'm just not about it. And so yeah, um, and she came home with the biggest smile on her face. And I was like, yeah, girl, you danced it out. I totally get it. That's super cool. I'm glad you were able to see him with him, with her. That's wonderful. 
And it was a great show. Yeah. And we got to see him together several times. That was really neat. I also always think about a very special concert I saw him at in 2002 in Houston when my friend Andy and I waited near his tour bus after the show. And one of his handlers came out and said, "Uh, yeah, he'll sign stuff for you guys. Just wait a little bit. So we're like, oh, my God. And we waited and he came out. He'd kind of sat in his tour bus in the driver's seat and had each of us come up one at a time to get our tickets signed. And Andy started bowing and doing, uh, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy from Wayne's World. (laughs) (laughs) He just immediately goes into it and Meat goes, yes, you're worthy. Get up. Get up, get up right now. Oh, nope, you're worthy. Cool. And um, he wasn't even, it was like, I don't even care if you're joking. We're not doing that. And um, <laughs> and it <laughs> jives with how he famously would not let any promotional material call him a star or a legend or anything else. He said, if there's anything like that, we're not doing that. Stop it. So that was a very unbrand moment um, for me, for me to witness. And then my moment came and I went up. Uh, and I blanked out, and I just said, I love you, Milos, and um, with my <laughs> ticket step in hand. And he looked right at me, and he said, we love you, too. Very Aww. serious. And which was funny, because he talked in the royal we all the time. We're going to go up there and sing tonight. He would always do that. <laughs> so it was really funny and nice. Chatted for a few minutes. Of course, I still have that signed ticket stub. Yeah. Okay. So I never seen it. Do you have it framed? Where is this ticket stuff? That's so great. I do. I had just posted that on our socials and have that. It survived through the years. Mm -hmm. A pretty special one to have. Hard to believe 2002 was 20 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. I have plenty of those memories too. That's okay. That's awesome, Stephanie. That's really cool. And then to just him showing how humble he is, you know, with, you know, with Andy, you know, giving him the props that he deserves. He's like, come on, man, stop. I love that. So he was a really down to earth guy. Yeah, very much uh, wanting to, I think, have the humility that he had grown up with and just show that. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I could go on for a really long time about how he's influenced my life. Stephanie, during our Cool in the Gang episode, you had talked about music that you default to under stress. Yes. Uh, and I think, <laughs> yeah, and I think music, uh, Meatloaf is a huge one of mine and always has been for that, for sure. Um, yeah. From a thematical, thematical standpoint, musically and in his life, his theme was, uh, when the bastards get you down, get back up. Hang in there, no matter what. Uh, one line I always come back to is this line from one of his songs, when they knock you down, you got to get back up again. That's off of Peace on Earth from Hang Cool Teddy Bear, the album you'll hear him talk about in the interview. So his music and his ethos as a public figure was just very centered thematically around getting back up. Keep fighting when life throws challenges at you. He fought himself through a lot of different challenges over the years. He'd gone through bankruptcy, in the wow. 80s, which I think not everybody kind of knows about. No, nope. he had to subsequently, yeah, really nuts because you just think, oh, after he hit in the 70s, at least he he wrote things, he was fine until yep. the 90s, but it was tough. That's crazy. Um, it was tough for him. So he subsequently was really reproving himself through the strength of his live shows, 
for so long and built back this audience and um, prior to, of course, really roaring back on the scene of Bad at a Hill too. He never wanted anybody to call it a comeback, but he certainly mm-hmm. came back on the scene in a big way for sure. uh, with Bad at a Hill too. And so he professionally took those challenges and ran with them and then had many health challenges over the years, including being diagnosed with Wolf Parkinson syndrome and had major spinal issues that intermittently kept him from performing. It was really pretty hard for him. So he'd weathered just so many different challenges over the years. And I do think it's reflected in his art. I do. So having said all that, I'm going to say this. At the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020, he'd said on Facebook, we all need to come together, fight the outbreak of this deadly virus. So please know how to protect yourself and others around you. It's important that all of us follow the advice given us from all our medical communities. I know in subsequent times, after that time, he was upset about vaccinations being required for concerts and other things in some areas. And he was upset about other public health measures that are being implemented. Mm-hmm. And said a quote that really uh, it upsets me to quote this, but he was he had said in an interview, he was talking about not taking mask or distancing precautions and meeting people at conventions and other contexts. And he had said, if I die, I die, which, you know, now you hear that and it's just, it's such an emotional thing. So I say all that. And as of this recording, his vaccination status hadn't officially been released. So I will be taking a little bit of liberty here and connecting the dots. And I'm just going to say you're 14 times more likely to survive COVID if you're vaccinated. So listeners, please get vaccinated if you haven't. This isn't worth the risk. This isn't worth your life. I keep thinking about the times where his music and his shows pulled me up. And then I think about the fact that there won't be new music from him. And there won't be another tour. And I'll never get to see him in concert again. It's a tragic loss. I'm so sorry for his wife, Deborah, and his daughters, Pearl and Amanda. And I hope that if anything, his passing isn't in vain and that folks will see this public figure who had overcome every health challenge in his life, except this one, except COVID. The pandemic's real. It's not over. If you've been looking for a sign to get vaccinated, this is your sign. Comes out he's vaccinated. I will make sure to correct this. But if this cannot be in vain, I think that's important. Yeah, Stephanie, and I I totally get that. Um, Wow, y'all. You know, just to piggyback on on the unfortunate pandemic that we are all still in the throes of. I recently recovered from COVID. And there's a lot of people who say, oh, it's just like the flu. Guess what? The flu fucking sucks. And this sucked worse, straight up, not sugarcoating it. If there's one thing you guys will know about me, I'm very transparent. And I am super glad I was vaccinated because I'm pretty sure that I got Omicron, which is the lesser of the, you know, of the variants of COVID, but that shit knocked me out for days. And I am a quote unquote healthy person. I'm active. I run half marathons. I hike. I eat well. I lift weights. I take care of myself. This shit had me down and I have never felt that bad. And I've had the flu before. And, you know, as now, as I'm standing here and I'm glad I'm able to record because I didn't know if we were going to be able to, because I didn't know how sick I, you know, I had COVID for a week and a half of feeling really down. Glad that I'm here to talk today, but I still feel lingering symptoms, you know, and it's, it's, it's really shitty and I am vaccinated. 
Um, funny thing is, is I was supposed to go get my booster the day um, after I got um, a test because I wasn't, wasn't feeling good and allergies are just bad in my area of the US. And it turned out I have COVID. <laughs> and guys, I, I agree with Stephanie. It's not worth your life. At the end of the day, it is not worth your life. So go get vaccinated. And anyone out there, any of our listeners who are dealing with this bullshit right now, um, I'm feeling you 500%. You have my empathy. I'm sending you all the healing powers for anyone, any loved ones. We need to get a hold on this shit. It's not cool. It's just not. And to hear meatloaf dying from this really, really saddens me, especially knowing how strong he was as an individual. It's just, it's just really shitty. Yeah. Times 1000 there, Pena. And I'm just so glad you're feeling better. Um, I know you've had a rough couple of weeks and I'm just, I'm feeling grateful and happy to see you here um, as we record on Zoom and just really happy Thank you're you. in the clear. Thank you. Me too. Yeah. So I'll say again, like I've said many times, Talk Tuners, this is a podcast where we connect the dots. This is a show that goes beyond the music itself. Art doesn't fall out of the sky. It comes from people. And those people are connected to stories and memories and life themes and very real things that are happening. So thank you for letting me share my memories today, Stephanie. Thank you. Um, and thank you to, to the listeners. Without further ado, here's my interview with Meatloaf, which took place May 6th, 2010. Couple of notes, just to make it clear. These are my personal recorded notes, and I use them to do my own transcription for the website piece. And with that, you may even be able to hear me typing at times. I had never intended to release this audio, so didn't gear it to be heard externally. But I think it needs to be released. I've seen a couple write-ups since his passing that questioned whether he was a prickly figure to journalists. But if you came in, Knowing your shit, having done your research, um, he couldn't be nicer. So in release this, so folks can see that for yourself. He's a very warm person and generous with his time. He's not only very kind to me here, and we talk at length about the album and other things, but he also says some nice things about some of his contemporaries, including Dave Grohl, Foo Fighters, and Kings of Leon. So just FYI, when we start off talking about the album, we're talking about Hang Cool Teddy Bear. Go check that one out if you haven't. It was an album he was really, really proud of. He talks about the character Patrick. As a soldier, he's talking about uh, that as the theme of the album and uh, the concept of the album kind of conceptually through the interview, just so that's clarified. And as a kind of funny related side story, when this interview was originally published on the DCQ website, someone linked to my piece from his Wikipedia page. He says in the interview, as you'll hear, that the Hang Cool Teddy Bear might be his final album. And he said that and people noted it. He did end up making subsequent albums, but yeah, he said that in the interview. So for quite a while, this interview was up on his Wikipedia and I didn't put it there. So I thought that was kind of cool and funny. So anyway, digressing again, but the audio you're about to hear is extracted from an old device. Please excuse the quality at times. It's a phone interview. It was back when landlines were more of a thing. There's a few times we have trouble hearing each other, but I think you'll be able to hear and enjoy. I treasure having this. Hope that in sharing it, people will see what a warm and great person he was. So thank you, Talk Tuners. I'm happy to share this with you. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Meade. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? 
I'm great. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for talking to me. Of course. Congratulations on the new album. Uh, it's great. Thank you. I hear you're uh, really happy with the way it turned out. Um, I'm beyond happy. Happy is <laughs> what? What is it? Ecstatic? Uh, let's see. Let's try uh, go up on the static. Um, uh, it's spiritual. <laughs> Can't beat that. I heard that in working with Rob Cavallo, I heard he'd come to you and said, "I'm here to do a meatloaf record, not a Rob Cavallo record." So how is that? Yeah, I, you know that's yeah. like completely. That's a completely opposite of any other producer I've ever worked with, where they would say, "Well, you know, my name's on this too," and and you know, this is this is gonna be this is my career too. And, right. And Rob Cavallo, is, he just doesn't go on that. Uh-huh. I mean, he's secure with who he is, obviously. Right. And so is the recording process just completely miles away from anything you've ever done studio-wise? Completely, yeah. Any other time I've ever done a record, people would go, don't we have to go to the studio? Yeah, yeah. Well, aren't you going to go? Yeah, I'm going to go down there. Yeah, yeah. Well, shouldn't you go? Yeah, I'm going in a minute. Don't, come on. And this one, I would get up in the morning just dying to go. I get up in the morning and go warm up because I'm gone. Okay, I gotta go. Bye. <laughs> I want to be there. But then I get really tired at 11 o'clock and I have to leave. And Rob, <laughs> Rob, like, kind of moses around in the afternoon. It's very funny, the energy level. My energy level is like, you know, 112 in the afternoon. His is running about 80. And around about 8 o'clock, mine starts to drop. His picks up about 11 o'clock. He's running at 140, and I'm, like, falling down. So I go, and he and he'll get another three hours and do all kinds of stuff. And then the next day I come in, do what they did. And he goes, you like it? And I go, yeah. Or, no, I don't like that. He goes, okay, well, don't use that. Erase that. And that's great. It's like he could spend, spend three hours doing something and I can walk to go, I don't like that. Okay, cool, no problem. Okay, get rid of it. That's that's, that's the beauty of Rob. It's like, okay, nope, who cares? He doesn't like it, we don't use it. And that's probably why there's just, there ends up being like such a range, I think, of styles on this album, too. Um, which I thought was well, that's, that, there, yeah, there is a range of styles, but you know, it's always been, I've always tried to do that, because I always find that much wish. I always consider them to be like going, going to a circus, <laughs> and, and, and if you, if you just, I mean, a circus would be really boring if they just had, you walk into the circus, and you had two and a half hours of an elephant. <laughs> I mean, you'd be going, 
what kind of, what is this? You know? But when you've got camels and giraffes and, you know, and maybe, um, maybe I'm using the wrong thing because sometimes circuses can be cruel to their critters, but, um, but you know what I mean. Uh, you know, if they've got trapeze, they've got clowns, they got all kinds of things going on. And it makes it a, a really interesting, fun, visual kind of thing. So when I, I make records, I want them to be fun and visual. Right. It's like this record would have been the perfect record in 1972 for Strasburg to give to his actor studio image method to class. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, it would have been absolutely perfect for that. Um, they, cause I would have loved to have seen the vision, you know. This would have been... This is actually, to me, even more visual than, than that. Uh, that is incredibly visual. But I think this is, it, it's, it's a more, um, it's an easier road to walk down. Right. Than the visuals. I was I was also really struck by your vocal range on this album. Uh, did you have to do vocal rehabilitation after being diagnosed with the vocal cord cyst on the ear? Yeah, we did it with the cyst. Yeah, and then they put me out on the road when they shouldn't have. Oh God, uh -huh. you have no idea what it, <laughs> what misery it was from 2006 until. Um, the end of 2007, it was just, I, I was in hell. I mean, I literally was in hell and they just, they just, they just wouldn't stop beating me. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, basically they were saying, well, he's not gonna ever do anything else, so let's get everything we can get out of him while, we, while he's still standing. Oh, that's horrible. And, uh, and then I had the system, my vocal cord, and, and they were, once the cyst popped, they were trying to put me out on the road in February, and the doctor yelled at him and said, he can't sing for a good six, seven months. You've got to, he needs three to four months of doing nothing, and then we've got to rehab him for three or four months. And they booked uh, that I didn't even know about, put them on sale, these old, the other managers. Uh -huh. And I had just gone through this whole thing in Newcastle where I had to walk up the stage and it was completely, I was at the, my lowest point ever. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then all of a sudden they put me back out on the road in the summer of what, 2008? And I'd have a show that was okay, and another show that was not good at all. My vocal, it just wouldn't hold up. Right, right. And, and, uh, so I was just quitting. I was going to quit, and then I, then I said, I can't, I can't go out with 
record, that Bat 3 record, because it was just, you know, visually it was wrong, character, there was no, the characters, the character studies were all wrong, there was no, there was no polish to the characters, and people, that's what I kept trying to tell people, and they just look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> and I keep going, there's no, where, where's your, where, where, show me where your character is here. Well, he's right here. I'm going, yes, but where's the development of him? How do you, how do you develop this character from this? Well, it's right there. I'm going, it's nothing there. And they were sending him to record companies behind my back. And, oh. oh, it was mind-boggling what was going on. Tells you 
his position in life of the first line does well goodbye my friends it was good to know you uh -huh. i hope you understand and how he's done nothing with his life and he doesn't this and he's you know but he's tried to you know he's scared it it's really kind of a, a bit of a wallow in self-pity from time to time, but that, if you're dying, I suppose you're allowed to do that. Because he talks about how he loves his mama, and I mean, it's all that. It's really just, but it's really well done. And then the second one, which really tells you who he is, and it says, uh, you know, uh, I got... Uh, what is it? Something on my tag, a bottle in my ear. I got a nickel in my boot. I'm, I got my friends for losers, and but I got my mama's gun, and you've got your lion smile, and yeah. let's go. They're outlaws. Right. He's a total outlaw. He's like everything that is not what is supposed to be. He would be looked down upon as like a bum, like a like a loser. And so what happens to him is that immediately, even though he he rides his ego off into the sunset here, what happens to him is life flashes forward and he immediately goes to who he is. And 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 he he lives in hell with that woman in Los Angeles, a loser, but having to follow her around and be her puppy dog and be this guy who walks behind you know two steps and 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 then the speech in that song, the the way it really should have been delivered, or, or one of the not the way it should have been, but an option was. I want to thank all you women, especially the ones that have shown a little love for someone like myself. Mm -hmm. You know, this pitiful character. Right. But, but he, I, I had to, I had to maintain some credit. We, I had to maintain some credibility with him, so he had some something to to move on with, and so I chose that way. And so it's all. It was all, and, and, and when I'm doing vocals, I say to Rob and them, I'm going, okay, now listen, uh, the singer goes in and they, they're singing notes and meter, and I'm going in there going, okay, now listen, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make these words come across like this. And they're looking at me like I'm insane. When I do that, then we've got the vocal, okay? And, and they go, well, well, what about the notes? I don't care about the notes. And 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 Rob Cavallo then coined the, the phrase about me that I'm an actor who acts like I can sing. <laughs> because it was always about... About um, and I always try to twist the meaning of everything, mm -hmm. and it's like I would I I pointed out all kinds of stuff to Rob when because I move too fast I don't have time to sit around and talk to him 
once I once I've locked my character in and I know where I want to twist him and move him, I can't sit around and explain him to you. I don't have time. We we gotta move. Why why we probably we can't. But when the record was over, I I, I showed Rob some pieces in there like in Love Is Not Real where I sing Love and Hate and I sing Love like I hate you and I sing Hate like I love you. I had this album in my head, 
definitely taken a change. I was, um... But the audience is there. They're starved for good stuff. Uh-huh. You can just present it to them. And, and they, but, but the problem is they, they've lost their trust. Mm-hmm. And even though somebody might tell you, you know, I might say to them, look, this is a really good record, they've lost their trust. So they have to, they're all from Kansas now. Right, right. Um, and it's not different in the movie business either. There's very few uh, of the movie stars that they can use to open a movie anymore. Right, right. Because they just lost their trust. Mm-hmm. It's all about something else. They can put, you know, you put Meryl Streep, Steve Martin, and... Uh, Alec Baldwin and, and I forgot who else in the movie and, yeah. and that thing should have opened, you know, like huge, but it doesn't. Yeah. And um, it takes it takes something, you know, you got, you know, give them give them a remake of what Friday the Thirteenth or Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. And, and and you know what? They go, Well, we know what that is, so we're gonna we're gonna go there because we know we know what we're getting. Right. And uh um, retreading the same it, it, it's a matter of they the the business and all sides from from book business to music business to film business to, to politicians. Mm-hmm. The politics, everything, everybody's lost their trust in everything. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody is, uh, it's all splintered and, and no, no one side trusts anybody. <laughs> right. And it's a, it's a shame. Do you, um... Do you see that there's that pressure in the music business to, as you were saying, kind of retread that same path? Just like, oh, we know this. Let's go down this same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they try to get the, they, they've been doing that to me for 30-something years now. And finally, I, I, go, I, I just go, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. If, you're gonna, if we're going to do something, I'm going to do it this way. Uh-huh. And we got Rob Cavallo, and basically I did it. Did it, Rob? Well, I did it my way, but with the help of Rob Cavallo, so I must say I did it Rob in my way. Right, right. And do you think uh, for future projects and albums, uh, are you going to If out? I wouldn't, if I, I have no idea, but if I, I wouldn't do another record without Rob Cavallo, so. That's great. So either I do another, I never do another record, or I do it with Rob Cavallo. <laughs> so is there the chance that this could be the, the very last studio? What's that? Is there a chance that this could be the very last studio album? Yeah, there's, there's a good chance. Uh-huh. Yep, pretty good chance. <laughs> Would you consider continuing to tour, even if you were not uh, recording in the studio? Nah. No? Nah. <laughs> you heard it first here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We heard it first here. And then I got to run. 
All right. Thank you so much, Meet. Oh, no. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Really happy to be able to share my conversation with Meatloaf with you guys. And I would love to hear your Meatloaf memories. If you have any, you can share that with us. Stephanie's Talk Tunes at gmail.com. You can reach us on socials, Stephanie's Talk Tunes on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and then just Stephanie's Talk on Twitter. Would love to hear from you and would love to even discuss your favorite meatloaf albums, meatloaf songs. Well, I have a lot to say on it, so happy to nerd out with you about that. We're closing here with Where Angels Sing from Welcome to the Neighborhood. Take care, talk tuners. See you in two weeks. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.